0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We at Accessible World are very proud to introduce uh, another uh, program in our special program series. And it's our dear friend, Ed Cooney. If you're an American voter, born between 1890 and 1960, the personage and political career of Richard Milhouse Nixon was, in one way or another, a force in your view of American political life. Elected to Congress in the GOP year of 1946, representing California's 12th District, Mr. Nixon was notable and controversial beyond even his years as America's 37th president until his death in 1994. Every aspect of his being, from his looks to his politics and his family, compel voters all over the country to notice and take a position on his candidacies of the House, Senate, twice for Vice President, and three times for the Presidency of the United States. As part of the Accessible World Special Program Series, Edwin Cooney will offer his assessment of the cause of President Nixon's rise to power and fall from grace. The title of his presentation is, Richard M. Nixon, President Without an Anchor, This will not be a psychological, but rather a situational assessment of the forces and motivations that governed or failed to govern Mr. Mr. Nixon's actions. Mr. Cooney believes your assessment will be every bit as valid as his. Bring your objectivity or your prejudices and share them in an evening of analysis and speculation. Without further ado, it's my great privilege and honor to introduce my friend, Mr. Edwin Cooney.
1: In his book, Presidential Anecdotes, author Paul Bowler, he tells about an incident that occurred in 1962. Richard Nixon, former Vice President Nixon, was in California running for governor and he just completed his book, Six Crisis, and he was in a California bookstore autographing his book. And a gentleman came up to him and Mr. Nixon asked the gentleman, how should I sign the greeting to your book? And the gentleman said, Mr. Nixon, you've just just met your seventh crisis. My name is Stanislaw Wolschyszewski. Now that's just to, <laughs> Just to show you that uh, uh, what a struggle that was. That Stanislaw S T A N I S L A U S Wolschyszewski is W O J C H C H W-O-J-C-H-E-C-H-Z-L-E-S-C-H-K-I-L. So that was Richard Nixon's seventh crisis. And of course, uh, Mr. Nixon uh, met that crisis and went on to have other crises. I've entitled my remarks Richard Nixon President Without an Anchor and in the process of Uh, the process of putting this lecture together I have often wondered why I chose that title because in some ways he did have an anchor but his anchor was politics Richard Nixon was a man who saw things saw life as as a challenge life was real to him it wasn't a fantasy And while I did say that I would stay away from psychology, I will for the most part. But author Monica Crawley, who spent the last few years of, of Mr. Nixon's life working with him, wrote a book called Nixon in Winter. It was the story of the last few years of Mr. Nixon's life. And she ended her book with a little incident that took place when Mr. Nixon was three years old. He was riding in a buggy with his mother. He was sitting on the the lap of a neighbor and they went around a very sharp curve and the little guy fell out of the carriage hitting his head on the wheel as he fell to the pavement or to the road and of course it took his mother a few seconds to get the buggy stopped, but he didn't stay down. he got to his feet and he ran after the buggy. And of course he nearly bled to death during the time it took him that took them to get to ride 25 miles to a doctor, but he did live. In short, Richard Nixon's life would be about falling down and getting up and falling down again. I want to spend just the first few minutes of tonight giving you a bit of a background on who Richard Nixon was. Had the little guy died in 1916 or thereabouts when this accident took place, it's likely that the local press or the local newspaper would have printed Richard Nixon son of Francis Anthony and Hannah Nixon of Yorba Linda, California, suffered a fatal accident today. He was the son of Francis Anthony and Hannah Nixon. Frank Nixon was born in Carver, Ohio in 1878. Hannah Nixon was born in Butler, Indiana in 1885. The two met in California in 1908. Frank Nixon had been a painter and a, mo- and a motor car, and a, a, a motor carman, I guess you would say motor car engineer or motor car driver or um, street carman. Uh, he'd been a Democrat all his life in fact until one day he was driving his his um, street car in Columbus, Ohio And President William McKinley got on and told him what a fine horse he had. And from then on, he was a Republican and remained a Republican. He voted for, except in 1924, during the Teapot Dome scandal, and he voted for the third-party candidate, Robert LaFollette, the Progressive Party candidate. But he was a Republican all his life. He was quarrelsome. He was moody. He was quarrelsome. But he was a hard worker. And he taught his son to be a hard worker Hannah Nixon was quiet and gentle Nixon once said she was the quietest and most gentle woman that he ever met he said she never turned a tramp away she angered her husband in 1916 when she voted for Woodrow Wilson and she voted for Woodrow Wilson because he'd kept the nation out of war and that was her passion her passion was peace and that would be her son's passion Richard Nixon in a lot of ways was very very American he was very middle-class American he was raised with no advantages he worked hard in the family gas station and in a store he would get up at five o'clock in the morning and truck into Los Angeles to pick up produce for the store, bring it back and wash it and mount it for display. He was the second of five sons, his older son Harold who was born in 1909. He was born in 1913 and then came Francis Donald, whom they called Don Nixon. You may have heard his name when Dick Nixon was president. And then there was Arthur, born in 1918. And finally, Edward Colbert Nixon, who was born in 1930. At the age of seven in 1925, little Arthur died of tuberculosis. And three or four years later, Nixon's older brother Harold came down with tuberculosis when little Arthur died in 1925 Richard Nixon pledged to be very good he pledged to work hard he pledged to pay attention in school because he knew what the death of his little brother Arthur had done to his mother and his father and so he strove to be good and he was good he worked hard and he studied hard he graduated second from the top of his class from Whittier High School in 1930 he went from there to Whittier College it was largely a Quaker school And here we see a further development in Richard Dixon's life. There was an established fraternity on campus called the Franklins. It was populated by the upper crust of students, and they had little patience for kids who didn't have money. They wore white coats and black ties, and they ate steak. Nixon and his friends started a new fraternity, which they called the Orthogonians. They wore shirts without ties. And when they got together, they ate wieners and beans. Thus, Richard Nixon had from the very beginning of his life a sense of us and they. He had a very strong sense of his own social inferiority. And that would stay with him for the rest of his life and bring about much of what would happen in his life. He had a high school sweetheart by the name of Ola Florence Welch. She was the daughter of the Whittier police chief. And they went together from roughly 1928 into the time that Richard Nixon went away to Duke Law School. He went to law school in 1934. Many of their friends expected them to be married. But as Florence later said, they just kind of drifted apart. She liked him for his intelligence and his hard work. Politically they were very different. She was a New Deal Democrat and he was a Republican. Nixon got a scholarship, as I said a moment ago, to Duke University in 1934. and He had to work hard to keep up his scholarship. He did. He even worked in the summertime for a professor who had written a book that couldn't be published and he wanted all of the students to have a copy of the book and so Nixon cranked it out on what passed for a copying machine back then. He graduated third in his class at Duke University in 1937. And yet, unlike many of the graduates, he wasn't invited to a New York law firm. If he was going to have to practice law, he'd have to go back to California. Okay, so he did. He went back to Whittier. He passed the bar in November of 1937 and he went to work first as a junior partner I I mean, I'm sorry first as an associate and then as a junior partner for a law firm in Alhambra, California It was during this time that he met Thelma Catherine Ryan Her friends called her Pat because she was born on March the 16th of 1912 and that of course was St. Patrick's Eve and she always celebrated her birthday on St. Patrick's Day. She was pretty, she was smart and she was actually a second in several movies including the movie about the great Ziegfeld. She taught typing in shorthand in the local high school and Nixon got a part across from her in a community play and that's where they met. In fact the first night he met her he asked her to marry him. She said she just kinda looked at him thought he was nuts. In fact he went so far as to drive her into Los Angeles if she, if she had a date with somebody. Now, that's rather strange in the way we do things today but he would drive her. In, he would drive her in so that she could meet somebody else, and then he'd wait for her and drive her home. In the spring of 1942, two things happened of significance to Richard Nixon. First, Pat agreed to marry him, and although she was a Methodist, she agreed to marry him in a Quaker wedding. The second thing that happened is he became president of a frozen orange juice company called Citrofrost a number of local businessmen put in put money up for the company and and they tried to freeze orange juice and sell the orange juice what they did wrong I had never read but the company eventually failed on December 7th of 1941 war came and Nixon In January of 1942, the Nixons went off to Washington. In between January and June of 1942, Mr. Nixon worked as a lawyer in the Office of Price Administration. He worked in the tire rationing division of the Office of Price Administration. started out making $61 a week, and he was eventually raised to $90 a week but he soon became frustrated with the bureaucracy and so he enlisted in the Navy he entered the Navy as a lieutenant junior grade after basic training in Quonset Rhode Island where he met William Rogers who would later become Eisenhower's assistant attorney general and eventually Nixon's, and attorney general, and then Nixon's secretary of state. And we'll hear more about Bill Rogers in just a few minutes. From his basic training at Quonset, Rhode Island, he became the aide to the um, commander at uh, the naval base in Ottomah, Iowa, between October and between October of 1942 and January of 1943 he then went off to war he went to the Pacific where between January of 1944 and January and June of 1945 he was in charge of making more efficient transport in and out of battle in and out of the battlefield He made it possible a more, you know, he he improved the methods by way the wounded were removed from the battlefield and reinforcements were sent to the war zone. And he actually got a letter of commendation from the Navy for that. In August of 1944, he was rotated back to the United States. He went to the Alameda Naval Air Base, where he again worked in logistics and eventually he worked his way to the East Coast. On V.J. Day, in August of 1945, he was actually, he and Pat were were at Times Square and somebody lifted his wallet. He lost all his money that day. But the war was over. One of the things that he had been able to do, one of the accomplishments he had had been able to realize during the war was that he he was a good poker player. In fact, when he wasn't planning logistics for the Navy, he was running Nixon's hamburger joint, and he was playing poker. And he accumulated a tidy little fund of $10,000, and that $10,000 would come in useful, as you'll see, in just a few months. In October of 1945, he got a letter from an H. L. Perry, Herman Perry, who had been on the board of Whittier College. Nixon had run for student government his senior year at Whittier College as a member of the Orthogonians, remember the fraternity I mentioned just a few minutes ago. And he had won election by promising to make it legal to dance on the campus of the Quaker University and, and the logic of that was that if kids stayed in Whittier to dance and to party they wouldn't go into Los Angeles therefore they'd be that much freer of sinful Los Angeles and one of the board members on uh, uh, of the college was this Herman Perry. Herman Perry was one of the businessmen in a committee of 100 Southern California businessmen in the 11th District of California, of which Whittier was part. And this letter invited Richard Nixon, if he was interested, to become a candidate for Congress. 1946 would be an election year. Nixon would respond, he would visit the group of 100, and they would choose him as the Republican candidate for Congress in 1946, and so he ran. I'll go into that campaign in a little greater detail, but from a different angle here. Nixon, suffice it to say, that Richard Nixon won an upset victory in November of 1946 over Jerry Voorhees, who was a ten-term congressman from that district, he went on to serve in the House of Representatives. He, be- he became a member of the Un-American Activities Committee and the Labor Committee in the House of Representatives. He helped write the Taft-Hartley Law. And um, it's there where he met John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy and the Kennedy family were quite impressed with Nixon most everybody who met him was impressed with him despite the fact that he was a loner there was something about the way he held himself when it came to his work he was a hard worker, he was poised, he was thorough and it was while he was a member of the House on american Activities Committee That the committee investigating communism in the United States, he became interested in the case of Alger Hiss, who was then an editor of Time magazine and who had served in the State Department. And a gentleman by the name of Whitaker Chambers charged that Alger Hiss had been a member of the Communist Party in the late 1930s and that he had worked with Alger Hiss. Alger Hiss came before the committee and denied the charges. And everybody except Nixon believed him. But Alger Hiss was one of them. He was an elitist. He'd gone to Yale. Just as Jerry Fouries had gone to, had gone to Yale. Nixon decided that Alger Hiss was not telling the truth far too slick. And so he pursued the investigation and eventually Whitaker Chambers produced pa- papers which had been held in a hollowed out pumpkin. Mic- the, the, they had been microfilmed and, 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 and had been stored in a hollowed out pumpkin on Whitaker Chambers farm. And these papers proved conclusively that El Hiss had passed secrets to the Russian government in the late 1930s although the statute of limitations had been run out, but eventually Hiss would go to jail for having denied his association with Whitaker Chambers before Congress and so Richard Nixon developed a reputation very early of a go-getter of being successful at ferreting out communism and government it was that reputation that would lead him to election to the United States Senate in nineteen fifty and in nineteen fifty-two who he would become Dwight Eisenhower's running mate. I want to focus I want to look at things. beginning with the fall of 1955. I mentioned a few minutes ago that Richard Nixon had written a book called Six Crises. And these were the crises that he faced between his election in 1946 and his defeat by John F. Kennedy in 1960. It covered the Hiss case. It covered the campaign of 1952 when During the course of the campaign, it was charged that he had accepted money from uh, that a fund had when it was pointed out that a fund had been raised for him. It was said that it was a slush fund, a private slush fund, and it was in explaining that fund and the legitimacy of it and the use of it in what came to be known as the Checkers speech that had saved Nixon's reputation in 1952. Richard Nixon was just 11 days past his 40th birthday when he became Vice President of the United States on January the 20th of 1963. In the fall of 1955 it was September 24th 1955 it was a Saturday afternoon Unlike most Saturday afternoons, Dick Nixon hadn't spent time at the office. He'd gone to the wedding of one of his secretaries, a pretty young lady from New Hampshire by the name of Priscilla Nelson. She was marrying Henry Dwashock, the son of the Idaho senator. He had just returned from the wedding and he picked up the newspaper from the front door, took it in, and happened to read that Ike was resting that President Eisenhower was resting comfortably in Denver following an upset stomach upset stomachs were common with Ike and so Nixon didn't really think much about it until just a few minutes later the telephone rang and it was the White House Press Secretary Jim Haggerty Now this this is so typically American Dick Nixon and his wife have been to a wedding. They're home in their their Washington house with their two little girls. Um, Trisha's nine. Julie is about six or seven. And they're home from a wedding. They're sitting down getting ready for supper. And Richard Nixon gets a call. Informing him that President Eisenhower has suffered a heart attack. Here he is. He's forty-two years old. He's only a heartbeat away from the presidency of the United States. He telephoned his friend Bill Rogers, who was then serving as Assistant Attorney General. And he asks Bill to come over to his home. And Bill's wife drives him in and Duck himself. It was home, and they start discussing what they want to do. Nixon realizes that he has to be very, very, very careful because of his reputation in investigating communism, and because of a couple of other aspects of political intrigue, there were many people who were very suspicious of young Nixon. They thought he might be a little too anxious to become President of the United States, and Nixon was determined to function in this crisis in such a way as to earn their confidence. reporters were beginning to gather on the uh, the lawn. You know, back in the 1950s, many people don't realize this, but back in the 1950s, the Vice President of the United States only had Secret Service protection when he was working. The Secret Service would go home at five o'clock in the afternoon. So So Dick Nixon was very much a free agent. He was very vulnerable to the press or to anyone who would want to make contact with him for less happy reasons. They had to get away from the house. And so Mrs. Rogers came in and at the right moment young Tricia walked out on the lawn. And of course the press was intrigued with her and Nixon went out the back door with Rogers. They got in Rogers' car and they went to Bill Rogers' home. Where they began working on what they would have to do and how they would have to handle things in, in Ike's absence. Nixon passed the test. He was low key. He spoke to the press only when he had to. And there were giants in the Republican Party back then, in the House and in the Senate, men looking over his shoulder all of the time. House Majority Leader Joe Martin comes to mind. Giants in the Senate such as Senator Bricker and others. Richard Nixon was very much in a fishbowl and he was determined to not appear appear to be too anxious or to overstep his bounds. When the cabinet met he stayed in his vice presidential chair. He didn't go to the president's chair. When a member of the cabinet wanted to talk to him about a matter, he would go to their offices. One of the early decisions that they made was that a number of the cabinet members who had been scheduled right after the president's September 24th heart attack, who had been scheduled to go to Canada, that they should go to Canada to meet with their counterparts in Canada, just as had been planned. Nixon got through the crisis, the President recovered, and the President expressed appreciation, as did Secretary of State, State John Foster Dulles, expressed appreciation for Mr. Nixon, the way he had handled the crisis. But, the day after Christmas, December the 26th, 1955. Ike called Nixon into the White House. Hadn't made up his own mind whether he was going to seek a second term, the question was still open. But he suggested that perhaps in a second term, if he did run, that Mr. Nixon might want to consider stepping aside from the Vice Presidency to take a cabinet position. Arguing that he might get a little departmental experience, a little policy experience. Well, Nixon wasn't sure. Nixon didn't particularly want to leave the vice presidency. But he wasn't sure whether Ike was asking him to leave the vice presidency. And so much of the spring of 1956 was a time of uncertainty. Finally, in April, he made up his mind that he was simply going to tell Ike that he would be a candidate for re election as vice president of the United States. So he went into Ike's office one day in April and told him. And Ike said he was glad to hear it. And they went out, spoke to the press. And it looked as though Richard Nixon's path to renomination for vice president was clear. And then one of President Eisenhower's aides, his disarmament aide Harold Stassen who had been a prominent Republican for many many years announced that he had taken a poll and he was sure that Eisenhower could be more easily be reelected in 1956 if he had a new running mate and he suggested that it should be Massachusetts Governor Christian Herter Well, National Chairman Leonard Hall pulled the rug out from under Stassen by getting Herter to announce that he was going to nominate Nixon at the forthcoming Republican Convention in San Francisco, and so he did. You see, what's going on here is politics. Richard Nixon fully understood by now that politics was rough It wasn't idealistic. It wasn't so much about a, a man's image of the world as much as it was about getting elected, about taking advantage of being real about what's ahead of you. The next aspect of Mr. Nixon's life that I want to move into is the election of 1960. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to talk about it a little bit, I think, because I think it's important. By 1960, as I say, Richard Nixon has the reputation of being a gut fighter. He'll do anything to be elected. Richard Nixon understands how tough politics can be. he gets the nomination the republican presidential nomination without much of a problem but there is a threat from governor nelson rockefeller who was the only republican in nineteen fifty-eight to win a major race He became governor of new york nelson rockefeller had been working as uh, uh... as an assistant in the Eisenhower administration, the defense, as an assistant secretary of defense in the Eisenhower administration. But he ran for governor of New York in 1958 and was elected. And he was thinking about running for president. But as Nelson Rockefeller came to realize over the years, the rank and file Mr. and Mrs. America, the people whom President Nixon would eventually refer to as the silent majority, liked Dick Nixon. And so Nixon was nominated. Now what's interesting here, at least to me, is that Nixon chose as his running mate. Remember a few moments ago I talked about the Franklins, the upper crust at Whittier College, and the upper crust who are in Congress the graduates of Yale and Harvard and so forth. He took as his running mate Henry Cabot Lodge. Henry Cabot Lodge had been in politics since 1936. His grandfather had been a United States Senator, a professor at Harvard, one of Theodore Roosevelt's teachers. And His grandson Henry Cabot Lodge, who we knew as Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., had been in, been in politics since the 1930s and had been in the United States Senate from since 1936. He'd worked for Eisenhower and John Kennedy had defeated Lodge for election in 1952 and Lodge had gone off to serve in the United Nations as ambassador to the UN. One of the ironies about the 1960 election was that Richard Nixon, the man from small-town America, had a vice president born and raised in the upper crust of Massachusetts. The Lodges and the Lowell's. These were the aristocrats. And it was said that Richard Nixon couldn't get in to his vice presidential running mate's home. At least not the kind of person that Richard Nixon was. Perhaps if Richard Nixon were elected president, Vice President Lodge would invite Mr. Nixon into his abode, button, and without status, Richard Nixon was not equal to his vice presidential running mate. Richard Nixon and John Kennedy had been friends. When Richard Nixon was ran for re-election in, I'm sorry, when Richard Nixon re- ran for election to the United States Senate in 1950, one of his biggest donors was Joseph P. Kennedy. He sent Nixon $10,000. Their offices were, Jack, and Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon's offices were just a just across the hall from one another at the Capitol their staffs intermingled their secretaries were friends when John F. Kennedy was stricken with illness when he had to go in for surgery Richard Nixon worried about it in fact in the fall of 1954 Richard Nixon promised John Kennedy that if the Democrats were tied in the United States Senate with the Republicans, he would not take advantage of John, John Kennedy was in the hospital recovering from very serious back surgery, which almost killed him. And he promised John Kennedy that if he couldn't be there, Nixon would not vote for the Republicans to have a majority in the Senate. He wouldn't take advantage of of Kennedy's absence. They were close until 1960 and then politics took over. On the night of their first debate, 1960 was the first time that presidential candidates engaged in debate. On the night of the first debate, Dick Nixon got a call from Henry Cabot Lodge warning him not to be too harsh not to go over the line not to be too sharp in his debate with Senator Kennedy I think most observers would say that Richard Nixon behaved himself pretty well there were no reckless charges against John F Kennedy in fact it was John F Kennedy who was on the offensive during the campaign. The election was very close. Both candidates got over 34 million votes and Nixon lost the popular vote by hundred and twelve thousand, roughly. There was, and I'm sure you've heard about this many times, there was a question as to whether or not John F. Kennedy really won the election. There were problems in Illinois, in Missouri, in Texas, Lyndon Johnson's stronghold. Remember Lyndon Johnson, of course, was John Kennedy's running mate in 1960. And it was pretty well established that some people voted who had been deceased for a number of years. This was typical big city politics. And you would have thought that the Republicans would have taken this into account. But the election was close. Earl Nazo, who was one of Richard Nixon's biographers, was then writing for the um, Herald Tribune. And he began to write a series of articles about the shenanigans in Chicago. Meanwhile, about a week after the election, Joseph Kennedy became concerned that if Nixon were to seriously challenge the election there could be a problem. He needed to manipulate Nixon to come out publicly in support of President-elect Kennedy. Nixon was having lunch with his wife and friends at a restaurant in Key Biscayne, Florida, where he'd been going for a number of years for rest and relaxation. And he got a telephone call. And on the other end of the line was Herbert Hoover, Joseph Kennedy had contacted his friend, the former Republican President, Herbert Hoover. And President Hoover suggested to Vice President Nixon that he meet with President-elect Kennedy to offering the support, and Nixon agreed. Nixon believed that it would not be in the interest of the Republican Party or in the interest of the country to challenge the election of John F. Kennedy. The world was precarious. Relations between the United States and the Soviet Union were such that there couldn't be a vacuum of leadership in the United States. And so, Kennedy called Nixon and Mr. Nixon called Kennedy and they agreed to meet at Palm Beach the following day he went up he met with him he told the president elect that he would support him that no he didn't need a cabinet position Kennedy seemed relieved at that that no he didn't need a cabinet position and um that it was important that the administration get off to a successful start. There was one other dramatic event that took place in January. As perhaps all of you know, um, when we elect a president, we elect a president through what's called the Electoral College, and these electors meet in the various state capitals, and they cast their votes those votes are sealed and sent to the Congress and those votes are sent to the House of Representatives but in a joint session of the House and the Senate with the President of the Senate and Mr. Nixon Richard Nixon as Vice President was President pro temp of the Senate Richard Nixon presided over that joint meeting of the Congress and before that joint meeting he officially declared that John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson were the victors over Richard M. Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge. The election was over. Mr. Nixon would return to California. On the night of January the 20th of 1960, with celebrations with inaugural celebrations all over town. Richard Nixon used his government limousine for the last time to go to the Capitol. He walked up and down the Capitol and he decided that he would be back. Someday he would be back. Remember, when the little boy got up when the, when the little boy fell down, he got right up and so Richard Nixon left Janu- left Washington in January of 1961 and headed back for California. One of the better aspects of this was that having been vice President of the United States he could get a pretty good position in a this time, a lucrative law firm, and he got one. But he became restless and he ran for governor of California in 1962. And as all of you know, he lost. His heart was never really in the governor's race. He later explained that becoming governor of California he would have to commit himself for four years and therefore wouldn't be available to run for election in 1964 should President Kennedy seek re-election and that he could hold off until 1968. During the course of that campaign, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred. And President Kennedy's leadership led us through that crisis. Nixon knew once the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred that there was no way he would be elected governor of California. And so he was defeated by about 500,000 votes. And of course that was the occasion of the last press conference. Nixon had spent election night alone in his room at the Ambassador Hotel he had planned to have his Press Secretary Herb Klein give his concession statement but through the um, but he got word that the press wanted to hear from him and I think he would had a little more scotch than perhaps he should have although he was outwardly sober. He looked a little groggy, a little raggedy, but he went down to the press conference. And he felt that he'd had a bad press. He felt that he had been badly handled by Governor Brown. That his patriotism had been questioned. That his heart, that his interest in people had been questioned. And he didn't like it. I leave you as I, I want you to know. Just think how much you're going to miss. You're going to be missing. You won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. And so, the political career of Richard Nixon was, for all intents and purposes, over. And then, of course, came Dallas. It was ironic that Richard Nixon left Dallas on the morning that John F. Kennedy visited Dallas. He'd been in Dallas for two days representing one of their clients. He'd moved to New York after his defeat in California and taken a position with Mudge, Rose and Nixon. John Mitchell was also a member of that law firm. And one of their clients was pepsi And apparently they had some legal business going on in Texas, and so Nixon had gone to Texas that very weekend. He was on his way home. In fact, he had arrived back at, in New York, and somebody shouted to him. In fact, he was in a cab on his way back to his home. And somebody shouted to, to the, or asked the cab here, Nixon's cab driver, if they had a radio in the car. And the cab driver said, no, we don't. And he said, well, President Kennedy's been shot. And so Nixon rode it all the way in from the airport to his home not knowing what the president's condition was or whether in fact the president had been hit. And so, some thought that Nixon might be thinking there but for the grace of God go I? Not really. 1964 would be a disastrous year for the Republican Party. The country was determined continue the policies of John F. Kennedy. In the public mind, of course, Lyndon Johnson ruled in Kennedy's name, although Lyndon didn't look at it that way at all. In Lyndon Johnson's mind, it was, let us begin. And so so Goldwater's defeat was roughly 43 million to 27 million. Those are the rough figures. Johnson won about 61.4% of the vote. So the Johnson victory was complete. These were the out years. These were the years that Richard Nixon began to rethink and think about getting, rethink his, his way of doing things. the kind of leadership that he wanted to provide. This was the time when the Vietnam War was taking hold and we were getting caught in the quagmire of Vietnam. In 1966, Richard Nixon was the leader in the efforts to bring Republicans back in the political arena. Mr. Nixon said that they could win as many as 50 seats in the House of Representatives. Well, they won 47. They picked up three United States senators. And they picked over they picked up over five hundred members of various state legislature. A huge Republican victory in 1956 and many of those small-town Republicans old Richard Nixon. It was Richard Nixon who came to their fundraising events. The, chick- the rubber chicken and peas circuit, they called it. And so in 1968, Nixon would run that would be the year, of course, when Lyndon Johnson would decide not to run for re-election. That would be the year of the assassination of Martin Luther King and of Robert Kennedy. Now, it has to be said that Richard Nixon feared the Kennedys. He stayed up late on the evening of June 4, 1968, to watch the results of the California primary. And he went to bed feeling very uncertain when Robert Kennedy defeated Gene McCarthy that night. He feared no Republican, but he did fear Robert Kennedy. He used to say publicly that no candidate fears an opponent. No candidate would pick an opponent. He'd say, that's not really believable, but believe me, he believed it. The major issue in 1968 would of course be Vietnam. The anti-war candidates in the Democratic Party had been pretty much defeated by the establishment and Richard Nixon told the American people that he had a secret plan that would bring peace in Vietnam but he wouldn't say what it was. In late October of 1968, Lyndon Johnson announced a total cessation of bombing in North Vietnam. He had arranged with the North Vietnamese for a total cessation of bombing and their acceptance of the South Vietnamese to come to the peace table. it has been pretty well established that Mr. Nixon viewed this action on the part of Lyndon Johnson to also be a stratagem for electing Humphrey. Mr. Nixon had a friend who was close to Premier 2 the head of the government of South Vietnam her name was Anna Chennault she was the widow of General Claire Chennault who had been who had led the Flying Tigers in World War II fighting the Japanese in China very popular in that part of the country very close friend of Chiang Kai-shek and the story is that Lyndon Johnson or that Richard Nixon, that Mr. Nixon, spoke to Anna Chenault to urge her to tell Premier Two that he would get a better deal if he waited for Mr. Nixon. Lyndon Johnson did find out about it, and he wasn't happy. He told Senate Senate Minority Leader Dirksen that this was treason. Nixon came to believe that the only way Lyndon Johnson could have known about any contact between him and Anna Chennault was that he had bugged his telephone. But Johnson didn't do anything about it. The election was close, and Nixon won by the time Richard Nixon became president of the United States he realized or, or, or it was his it was his belief that success was situational That success was not about following the rules, it wasn't about deliberately breaking the rules, but it was about using your resources, utilizing your resources. Once elected, Nixon was afraid of the Kennedys again. He was absolutely sure that Teddy Kennedy would be in a position to take it all away from them in 1972 now I want to say a word here about another aspect of of Mr. Nixon Richard Nixon contrary to in some ways his own representation of himself was not really a conservative of course liberalism was the dominant political theories in the 1950s and the the late 50s and 60s and into the 70s but Richard Nixon wasn't really a conservative many conservatives realized that too because even though Richard Nixon continued the war in Vietnam through a strategy of what he called Vietnamization of the war though he continued to bomb North Vietnam though he even briefly expanded the war into Cambodia He was thinking thoughts that no respectable conservative would have. Example, three pieces of domestic legislation, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and eventually the institution of wage and price controls were all an anathema to Republican conservatives no way would the Reagan administration or later the Bush administration even consider measures such as these and above all there was in 1971 the opening of relationship of the relationship with China another aspect of Richard Nixon's thinking as he would explain to Monica Crawley in the 1990's yes he'd been anti-communist but if you were going to govern the world you had to govern the world as it was and that communism as bad as it was especially in China the difference was was the best way to attack it was to cooperate with it the communist Chinese once Nixon had visited China in 1972 over a period of time the communist Chinese began to institute changes in their marketing they began to allow the market economy to grow and Nixon believed with time the market economy would eventually destroy communism as it is that it would take time not everything could be decided all at once. It wasn't the mission of the United States to overthrow communism. It wasn't even the United States' obligations to coexist with communism. Russian communism was a different thing from Chinese communism. Again, the world was not as we wished it. The world wasn't idealistic as we wished it. The world was in fact politics. It was all about politics. Richard Nixon ran for election in 1968 with the promise to end the Vietnam War. And yet the Vietnam War would continue. As I said a moment ago, it would continue through Vietnamization. But Nixon saw Vietnamization as the strategy that would end it. It wouldn't end it as quickly as the American people wanted. But Nixon believed that if we publicly withdraw from Vietnam, that we we would not be credible as an ally, as someone who could sustain stability in the governments of the world. And so, he could depart from his lifelong opposition to the government of Red China. At home, he had more difficulty. At home, the ever-present fear of defeat by the Kennedys, and the culture changes that were taking place here at home were harder for Mr. Nixon to understand. When Teddy Kennedy became involved in that tragic automobile accident at Chappaquiddick in July of 1969 and of course The irony was was that that accident happened over the weekend of the uh, Apollo 11 lunar mission. That should have been a great weekend for the Kennedys because it was the culmination of President Kennedy's dream to put a man on the moon before the decade ended. That should have been a great week for everyone, for the Kennedys, and yet this tragic accident happened. Nixon realized this was the chance to nail the Kennedys. And so he began to put together a unit under um, John Ehrlichman, who was his domestic counselor, a unit of investigators. Um, Tony Tony Yulasiewicz, Jack Caulfield, E. Howard Hunt and others, Charles Colson. He resented the fact that Teddy Kennedy might, that he resented the possibility that Teddy Kennedy might get away with Chappaquiddick. He resented, too, the bitterness on the part of the cultural elites in Washington. Again, remember, there's always those elites those cultural elites in Washington who failed to adequately blame the Kennedy administration for the Vietnam War and yet criticized his policies how is it possible that the burning of draft cards the desertion of military duty and so forth could be popular with the opinion leaders in the press and in the media. How was it it fair for him to get the criticism when he had taken on the responsibility? When it wasn't easy for any of them There was another little incident that occurred that I think was telling. One of the most powerful men, he was never quite in American politics, but he was always a part of American politics. But one of the most powerful men in the United States between the time of his appointment in 1924 until his death in 1972 was FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. In fact, it was J. Edgar Hoover who told Richard Nixon in November of 1968, just after his election, that the reason Lyndon Johnson knew what had gone on between Nixon and Anna Chenault was because Johnson had bugged his headquarters. But there was an incident that that took place in 1971 that I've always found absolutely fascinating. J. Edgar Hoover was beginning to be unpopular with millions of Americans. He'd become too set in his ways. He was getting a little careless with the FBI. He was becoming increasingly a police agency. Nixon finally decided that he was going to ask J. Edgar Hoover for his resignation. And apparently they worked it out one day at the White House. They they worked out he was going to have breakfast with J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover was um, almost 75 years old. In fact, he was 75 years old. Nixon was going to ask for his resignation. And Haldeman and Ehrlichman had worked this out. Remember, they were the Haldeman and Ehrlichman were the two advisors to Richard Nixon. And they were going to work this all out with Hoover. Nixon was going to meet with him alone. And they briefed Nixon. They went over Nixon's talking points and so forth. Ehrlichman had other duties that morning. And he went off to take care of those. And later he came back and he spoke to... Bob Haldeman. He said, "Hey, how did the, he said how it go with Hoover this morning?" He said, and, and, and Haldeman said, "Forget it." He said, "Forget the whole thing." He said, "Yeah, they had breakfast, but he says Hoover's still director of the FBI. Nixon couldn't fire him. And not only, and not only, did Hoover survive the breakfast meeting with Nixon." He actually had Nixon's support to expand his FBI offices in Europe. The FBI and the CIA were always struggling over, you know, territory, whether here or in Europe. Now, technically, the FBI isn't supposed to be involved in Europe, but the FBI is the FBI. So Nixon couldn't fire him. the question remains how could a man of Richard Nixon's savvy fallen for Watergate he fell for Watergate I think at least in part because he didn't have an anchor he didn't have a doctrine he was a man of what once would be called realpolitik. When it was sufficiently popular to oppose China, he opposed China. As the culture began to divide, he found a way to accept China. as the Vietnam War came to a close he could open up detente with Russia detente was a way of working things through with the Soviet Union it it wasn't exactly coexistence it was a way of acknowledging one another's strengths of acknowledging one another's not their intentions but recognizing one another's areas of influence Richard Nixon was not a man of ideals he was a man of situations when he was young and junior in the Republican Party he was careful He was careful to respect the Dulleses and the Lodges in the Eisenhower administration. He was less careful when he became president because the government was a government of his contemporaries, not of his seniors. And as Richard Nixon grew, Richard Nixon became increasingly ungovernable. And so he miscalculated. he miscalculated in such a way as to ruin his presidency the political counter to his personality not so much to his policies but to his personality was such that it got out of hand On the night he resigned he asserted that he was resigning because he didn't have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing the fight for his vindication. Well, the country didn't see it that way, but that's how he really saw it. He never believed that he corrupted the United States government. He believed his efforts to contain Watergate were merely the effort to contain the political fallout from Watergate. He made that distinction time and again in his post-presidential explanations of what happened. I think I can support the conclusion that Richard Nixon in fact was a man without an anchor. I could have said that he was a man without a star. And eventually one might even say that on August the 8th, 1974, when he resigned, he was a man almost without a prayer. if you were to ask Monica Crawley author of Nixon in Winter what the key of his that little speech there, that little talk he gave on Friday, August the 9th as he left the White House, that little talk that he gave to the White House staff she would tell you That the key part of that speech was when he said, there's always a beginning. That even if you lose an election, or if someone close dies to you, it may seem that the light has gone from your life forever, but it's not true. the little boy who fell down got up the vice president defeated for election in nineteen eighty became the successful candidate in nineteen sixty-eight the man driven from office would go on to write Seven bestsellers. In fact, he wrote ten books altogether, beginning with Six Crisis in 1962, RNN, his biography, 1968, The Real War in 1980, About Leaders in 1982, the Real Peace, 19. Eighty four No More Vietnam, nineteen eighty five. A book called Nineteen Ninety Nine in nineteen eighty eight. In the Arena in nineteen ninety. Seize the Moment in nineteen ninety two. And the final book and some said his best book I've never read it I know something about it from what Monica Crawley wrote about it it's called Beyond Peace and what he wrote about in Beyond Peace was what we would do with that peace when that state of peace finally comes everybody wants peace but what do you do with it what kind of a peace is it So Monica Crawley would tell you that the key point of that speech was reaffirming that there's always a beginning. I will assert, however, that the key phrase was something quite different. Richard Nixon said, always remember... Those who hate you never win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Nixon's anchor, whatever anchor he possessed, Nixon's sense of restraint was sheared by hatred. I think he knew it and I think he ultimately took it with him to the grave. I'm not one of those who believes that Richard Nixon was the devil incarnate by any means. I think he had much to be proud of, although I think he has a slightly um, I think he has his, I think his reputation for being a successful leader in the area of foreign policy is slightly exaggerated. But what eventually sheared his anchor, leaving him adrift was his hatred. Because when you hate others, they don't win unless you hate them. Thank you very much. Menu bar, five and aggregate press left or right arrow action. So, met, block, talk, key over The Costa is talking. The does dot. Robert Acosta is talking.
0: Well, Ed, thank you so very much. Especially that last, uh, those last remarks about hate. Because hate can only destroy you. It's not good. Uh, let's see if we have any questions from our audience. A wonderful, wonderful talk. Yes, I have a question about the Watergate business. Why on earth did he make tapes of everything? I understood that they did it because of the history, that he had a sense of history. But those tapes are what were the things that really condemned him, as I saw it.
1: Well, actually, you're right about that. Um, well, his explanation was that in writing the history, and again, remember, he was always. Con- I mean, he. He didn't like to be contradicted, and he made tapes so that there would be no contest about what he wrote, about what he said. He could always prove, you know, his point of view. Um, Lyndon Johnson had had bugged the White House too. I remember how, you know, back when Nixon was asserting that such was the case in 1973 and 1974. I remember people saying, that, ah, Johnson and Kennedy, they didn't do those things, um, but they did. Uh, I'm not sure that they had quite the extensive taping system that Mr. Nixon set up, but I, I, I think he taped because he wanted to be able to prove anything that was seriously contested. I think it was just as simple as that.
0: Robert, the okay, other, are there other questions, please? I'm sorry we're not hearing you, whoever is trying to do that. Let me uh, ask one that's always bothered me. Uh, In 72, it was very clear that he was going to defeat George McGovern. It was just not a race. And yet, you're saying that in uh, the late 60s, uh, Ehrlichman was leading a unit to get the Kennedys and investigate people and so forth. Um, did it become that it just became out of control and he was ungovernable anyway? and he thought, I mean, he didn't have to do it. He was going to win his second term as president without any problem?
1: Bob, I think you know I tell you what's interesting about that, and, and I should have said something about this. Um, I didn't leave much out, but I did leave a couple of things out. I should have mentioned the Pentagon papers in June of nineteen seventy one it was just like it was the day after his daughter. Tricia married Ed Cox at the White House. Um, The New York Times published Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, which was, of course, the history of Vietnam and the history of of those things which got us into Vietnam. And, you know, Nixon didn't personally mind it, uh, mainly because it exposed Democrats. You know, Lyndon Johnson, all the way back to Harry Truman it showed the incompetence of, of mostly Democrats and uh, but Henry Kissinger reminded Nixon he said look in this remember the June of 1971 the China uh, card hadn't been played yet and they were they were still in in private negotiations and and one of the things that Henry Kissinger was very very much very sensitive about was leaks And that if people could leak material like this, we had to plug it up. We had to plug those leaks. We had to stop those people. You know, this this couldn't be all right. And actually, it was it was that 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 um, caused Nixon to intensify the people. It wasn't only Ehrlichman. It was you know it was Ehrlichman was his domestic counselor, but Haldeman knew about it. it. It was it was a policy in the administration to. to investigate these people and to manipulate and to you know, they the they, they put together what's called the plumbers. You know, when you you know, what's a plumber who comes to your house and, and you know, and fixes a leak. And so they they instituted the plumbers, was and it was under what was called the Houston plan. And it was that actually that J. Edgar Hoover objected to. J. Edgar Hoover didn't want Richard Nixon's White House fooling around in in domestic intelligence. That was that was the the, um, the struggle over over territory that, that that Hoover became involved in with the Nixon administration, he did not like it. Hoover did not like the plumbers and and, and so forth being established. That was his territory, not not the president's. And um, I should have mentioned that when I in my presentation, and then I failed to do that. But that was part of it that got out of hand. But part of it was, another part of it was the double standard that he saw. Um, one other thing I didn't go into, I could have, I could have gone into, the uh, what Nixon saw as the um, willingness on the part of John Kennedy to see uh, President Diem murdered in 1963. Uh, and nobody criticized Kennedy for that he didn't think that John Kennedy had got sufficient fallout from the Bay of Pigs failure in 1961 so again he he saw him and he saw himself and his administration being criticized for everything and his enemies being criticized for nothing they were still political and cultural heroes
2: again thank you so much for a good presentation I want to comment on your statement that uh, Nixon was not a conservative, and I would agree with that, uh, that he was not a conservative. Um, you didn't comment on his vice president, uh, whose name is suddenly escaping me. But you'll remember that he came into, and I'm thinking of the first one, 1969, uh, or 19, was it 1970, when he gave this famous speech about uh, about the bias of the press and so on. Uh, he was, he was um, sounding at least some conservative lines uh, so was this a marriage of convenience was uh, uh, the governor of Maryland um, more conservative than Mr. Nixon uh, or was this again a situational kind of thing I had another comment to make I've forgotten what it was but uh, that's my question
1: his name was Spiro Theodore Agnew that was his name you know, Agnew is, is an interesting case. I, I, I still find, you know, you read very little about Agnew, and, if Agnew doesn't have much respect at all anymore, partly because of what happened to him, but I'll, 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 I'll respond this way. No, I'm not sure Agnew was a conservative at heart. You know, Agnew was originally a Democrat, uh, had run for a judgeship in 1960 in Maryland and lost. Um... Ted Agnew, well, he called himself Ted. And Ted Agnew was elected governor of Maryland in 1966, and he ran on an open housing platform. Uh, his Democratic opponent, his name was George Mahoney, ran on a man's home as his castle. You know, it's reaction to the 1964 Civil Rights Bill that, um, uh, you know, many conservatives reacted to. You know, a person has the right, after all, to do with their property whatever they want to. A person, the government shouldn't be able to tell you if you own property, who you can have on it, who you, you know, the right of association, or the right of, you know, more specifically, the right of disassociation. So, you know, um, it's, um, so anyway, just to answer your question about Agnew, um, Agnew. Two things happened in 1968. Okay, Agnew was elected governor, as I say, on an open housing platform. And in fact, they, re, they, they rewrote the uh, large portions of the Maryland Constitution in 1967, and it was more inclusive. It was a socially liberal Constitution. And Agnew put many blacks on his staff and appointed them to judgeships and so forth. So he, he had the reputation of being liberal. Then, in March of 1968, you remember that, in fact, he was head of, he was head of um, uh, Citizens for Rockefeller, and then Rockefeller, without telling him, dropped out of the race in '68, and Agnew was bent out of shape when he didn't have, when Rockefeller didn't have the courtesy to call him and you know telling him he was dropping out, and he indicated that maybe his second choice would be Nixon. Okay. Um, Then, of course, Martin Luther King was assassinated, and you had the riots in Baltimore, and Agnew came real, really unglued over that. He felt that the black leadership, especially in Baltimore, was not true to their word. He said, you know, you could have stopped this had you tried. In fact, he accused them in an open news conference of running away, you know and um, so he became more reactionary. I would call Mr. Agnew more reactionary than conservative. Now those speeches that you were referring to in 69 and 70 were largely, okay, Agnew had his own input into them. They were written by Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan and Victor Gold and uh, there was one other person, Cynthia. I can't remember what her last name was, but she was one of the speech, writer, one of Agnew's speechwriters. And of course, now Nixon knew about those, and and he approved of them. But I, I would say that Mr. Agnew was more of a reactionary than he was an ideological conservative. Although his politics became conservative, um, and you're exactly right uh, that in fact um, Goldwater told Agnew in in 19. 19- 71 that if he, he, if he didn't shut up, he'd be president sooner than he planned to be. So uh, you're right to make reference to those speeches. The White House knew about them. Nixon, see, this is another side. See, Nixon did have a did have a, a, a liberal side, isn't exactly right, maybe a soft side. I mean, he, he, he found the Agnes speeches too abrasive. You know, he also referred to people like uh, G. Gordon Liddy, as a, you know, a nut that he's got to screw loose. Um, So, I think I've answered your question. No, Ted Agnew was not a conservative. Uh, But he was a reactionary. That's how I would classify him. And uh, I'd like to read a little more about him. He has a book out called, it was called Go Quietly. And he claimed in this book, Go Quietly, that the reason that he resigned as vice president was he came to believe that if he didn't resign, Alexander Haig would have him killed. How about that?
0: Oh, my goodness. I hadn't heard that one. Okay, one final question here. It grows late in the East especially. Any other questions, please? Well, Ed, we want to thank you so much. Another outstanding discussion. You really make us think. And that's the important thing. And uh, just thank you. You can I can tell one can easily tell the research that went into this and the passion at times, and that's great. So thank you so very much for making this excellent presentation tonight. Well,
1: thank you for having me again, Bob. And and again, sorry.